Welcome to the State of the Lakers podcast. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Uh, I, Raj, uh, how did how did your weekend go? Let's start there. Actually, it was really good. I went to um, Six Flags Magic Mountain. I don't know if you've heard of that, but um, it's like a roller coaster theme park, bunch of like thrill lot thrill rides and stuff like that. That was when I lost my voice on Sunday, so I'm glad like we got a little extra day layover. Do they have anything like that in Tucson? Like we have a of, like, six, I think we have a Six Flags in Phoenix, although I've never oh, been okay. there personally. Okay, yeah. so you're not a roller coaster really person, or love roller coasters, have, just haven't been okay. any in my life. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are fun. Yeah, it, it's kind of a scam to me because like you wait one hour for like a your best bet is like a one minute and a half ride. So basically like we went on nine rides in nine hours, which I mean, the day flies by a little bit, but in 95 degree weather, you start questioning yourself. Like this ride Superman is literally 30 seconds long, but the wait is about an hour and a half. So by the, by the end, you're kind of like, did I get scammed? (laughs) No. So, um, but yeah, went through that. Yeah, I'm not a huge theme park guy for that very reason. Okay. I like I, I like to think I'm a nice guy, but I'm not a fan of being around people, which I don't like. I don't really know <laughs> how that works, but that's that's kind of the way I am. Um, anyway, uh, I had a basketball heavy weekend. We the the men's okay. league that I played in, we had a doubleheader on Sunday, and then we just kind of chilled. I played some golf on Saturday. It's pretty low key. Anyway, today we're going to talk about uh, Game Five of the NBA Finals. Um, really briefly, just for about 10, 15 minutes, um, just kind of, cause I felt like it was almost a continuation of game four in a lot of ways, uh, yeah. with the exception of the fact that Drew Holiday made more shots than he usually does. Uh, and Chris Paul was a little bit better. Um, his numbers I thought were a little better than he actually was. Um, but then we're going to talk a little bit about how, what, what this Bucks victory means for the Lakers and their team building strategy. Um, and, and just whether or not it should adjust their strategy this summer as they're kind of making some moves on the periphery of their core players in the roster. And then last but not least, uh, I was not overly active on Twitter, although Raj was a witness to the catastrophe that was the Hoopers versus basketball players debate that took place uh, in Twitter spaces. Uh, I have some thoughts on that. Raj has some thoughts on that. So we're going to get to that uh, after we talk about the game. But let's start. Let's start with the game. Um, you know. I was super wrong about this series uh, right up until the point where I was very wrong. If that, if that makes sense. Like I was, I picked the Suns in five. I thought they were the more skilled team. I thought they were the more talented team. I thought it would manifest over the course of the series. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, it was close to that, you know, a couple things go differently in game four. They could have been up three, one, and then same goes for game five. Uh, but it's important when you're wrong, in my opinion, it's it's important to try to identify why you were wrong, and you know one the one of the key reasons why I think I was wrong is I've undervalued the way that physicality will eventually win the day, and yeah. the examples that we used to kind of try to talk about how maybe shot making and skill were taking over were teams like Philly losing and teams like the Lakers losing when the reality was the Lakers lost because Anthony Davis got hurt and the, the, um, the Sixers lost because outside of uh, Joel Embiid, they didn't have anybody that could create a shot for themselves and, and their offense got really, really stagnant at the end of those games. So I think we overthought that a little bit, and I put a lot of emphasis on how the Lakers desperately needed more shot making and how they desperately needed more shooting. And, and I think the Bucks are evidence of the fact that that's kind of wrong. 
Because when you get to this point and the physicality takes over and the refing takes on this type of, you know, these types of tendencies and uh, uh, and it just becomes almost like this battle of attrition, like whose body is going to hold up the longest. You see guys like Chris Paul wearing down, you know, Devin Booker, God bless him, just keeps making shots. But, you know, at some point he's going to start missing some shots and the thinner players on the sun seem to just be kind of getting run roughshod over by these the like by these big, huge, strong the uh, yeah. NFL player looking basketball players that play for the Bucks, and mm. and so do you think? Do you think maybe th- that maybe we jumped the gun a little bit on some of this stuff having to do with skill and what wins in the NBA? Well, first thing, did you bet on this last one as well, or no? I have not bet since I lost okay. my ass in Game Four. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering. Um, I thought Phoenix would. T- I think this is at least this is where I was wrong. I don't know about you. I did not think Chris Paul would be taken out like this. Like, I know Drew Holiday is a really good defender. I totally understand that. But, like, this is the stage where the, you know, the people who are on that list, where Chris Paul is, he's a top whatever point guard, however you feel about him, however you feel about his antics, all the other shit he does to try to win, you have to give him his credit. He's a big-time, all-time point guard. This is a stage where you show up. Like, it, it is what it is. I did not expect him to be played off like this. Like, there were possessions I was writing it down. Second quarter, Chris Paul comes off a screen. Drew Holiday's on his hip, takes a tough shot, misses. Again, comes down, takes a tough shot. Next next possession, he goes, stands in the corner for, like, the next three possessions, just absolutely relegated to the corner as a corner spacer. That, and Drew Holiday wins in that situation. Now it's just Devin Booker trying to create one-on-four. Like, it's that's the thing where I did not see coming. I did not see him just struggling like this. His line is very... Um, I don't want to say fake, but he finished nine for 15. He hit his last five shots. So he was basically four for 10 when the game was in its real balance. Chris Paul made this run. They made the run, obviously, to try to make it close. I couldn't believe that that he fouled Giannis. Like, this is one of the most highest basketball IQ dudes in the league. Like, you just can't foul Giannis in that situation. You have no, and you, we can debate if You're it's talking a dirty about on the alley oop. Yeah, we can debate okay. if it's a dirty play, dirty play or not. But to me, that's the change here is Chris Paul being completely taken out of the series. Devin Booker's hitting, you know, crazy, insane shots. But that's where I was wrong, at least. Do, do you see that as well? Like, I think the physicality has gotten to him where I didn't think it would at this much, le- at this level. Like, he's been really taken out. He can't do anything that Chris Paul does, even though he's 36. But still, like this, I didn't see him getting taken out like this. Yeah, so I think that uh, Chris Paul's inability to gain an advantage against Drew Holiday has yeah. actually been the downfall of the series um, because it kind of manifests both ways. So I think that that uh, a lot of the discourse surrounding Devin Booker and his unwillingness to pass that I'm sure you've seen seen some of, some oh, yeah. of that that's been floating around. I don't think that's Devin Booker's fault. I, I think I think it has to do with the defensive scheme of Milwaukee. They are not sending help on these isolations and pick and rolls with Drew Holiday or with Drew Holiday on on uh, CP3 and with uh, 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 PJ Tucker on Devin Booker. The reason why is CP3 literally cannot gain an advantage. He's being an inefficient scorer with Drew Holiday on him. And Devin Booker is being a high volume scorer. Like he's getting 40 points, but it's taking him 30 shots. And so from that perspective, I think they're staying home on all these shooters. And as a result, they're not getting these wide open corner threes that they got against the Lakers and that they got against the Clippers and that they got against the Nuggets that they got against everybody. They're not getting any of those. And so as a result, it's like Devin Booker just going off as basically their only offense 
And until one of them can consistently draw a second defender, which I think it would require CP3 because clearly Budenholzer's like, I want Devin Booker to go off. I'd rather let him have 40 and none of the other guys get shots. So if the cascading effect that you and I always talk about, you know, gravity works both ways. You know, yeah. you, 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 your spot-up shooters have a form of gravity. If they're knocking everything down, they pull guys away from your stars as they're working into the paint. But the gravity works in reverse. If your stars can consistently generate such an advantage that you have to send help, then the gravity sucks everybody in and then the, sh- the shots start coming. So the only way that they can go into Milwaukee and win is if Chris Paul starts to Cook Drew Holiday in a way that starts requiring the Bucks to send help. But what sign have you seen that would make you think that that's going to happen? Because again, you it's so easy to be like, he's old, he's wearing down, Drew's physicality is wearing him down, but they have two days off before every game. Like, yeah. I, I, like I don't think people realize that part. Like, two days off before every game, he's basically going into these games, unless he has a, an injury, he's going into these games as fresh as you're going to be in a playoff game. Like, like that's as fresh as you're going to be. He just physically, now that Drew Holiday is, like, tuned into all of his moves, he physically cannot get by him. And he physically cannot gain an advantage in the mid-range, at the three-point line, anywhere. He can't, get, he can't gain the advantage. It requires almost a defensive breakdown for, for him to be able to get a look. So I don't know. I, don't, I probably will put money on Milwaukee tonight because just strictly from the, the pathway of the, of the way this the series is broken down, I don't see advantages for the Suns to gain tonight that would allow them to hang in front of 20,000 Bucks fans that smell the title. Yeah, and and I trust Giannis as a leader to keep those guys focused. And I, 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 I if I'm a Suns fan, I'm feeling really bleak right now. Well, I'll give Suns fan a little bit of hope in a bit. But like you mentioned, Devin Booker, um, it's not like his forty is like it's not like he's open because Chris Paul's covered. You know what I mean? Like he's taking tough shots, coming off the pick and roll, hitting really tough contested twos, and. We we knew Phoenix was a high ball screen heavy team. Like th- their guards aren't like crazy athletic. They don't are really shifty. Don't get by you. But they like what Milwaukee has done to me is they've kept every screen and roll like a two on two. Right? Like it's not like a it's not a five on five. It's not a four on five situation. They kept it two on two, and that makes it um really tough. I guess for Milwaukee, like uh, for Phoenix, Drew and uh, Drew and Middleton took forty five shots in game in game five. I think five of them were at the rim. So like I, when I just look at those numbers, like those are shots you have to kind of live with. Like I feel like Drew and Milton both hit really tough kind of contested shots. The, the place the game changed to me was the Suns were up 16. Devin Booker went off the floor for five minutes. I think they changed that to a one point lead when Devin Booker came back. Like you, that just can't happen. Like you work so hard to get that kind of lead. You can't give it away in five minutes. And I think that's where they need to fix Chris Paul if it's not going, you have to put Booker back in. Like, this is do or die. He can't sit six straight minutes. Like, do you think that's possible? Do you think he'll get worn down by doing that? Like, uh, he played the whole second half, and I thought he was fine. Like, I felt like that six-minute break in the first half changed the game to me. Like, it it let Milwaukee come back. Giannis got in a rhythm. He got to the rim. By that time, uh, it was they were bulldozed over. They went up 10, and that was kind of the game. But do you see that as well? Do you think Devin Booker can go the whole 48, or is that, like, something Monty can't really do with him just because of his workload i guess um on the floor 
He might have to. One of the hard things is Milwaukee has done a really nice job of attacking Devin Booker to make him work yeah. to try to wear him out in that regard. Uh, uh, Zach Lowe had Tim Legler on yesterday. It was actually a really interesting podcast. I, I appreciate Tim's perspective on on everything because he's kind of like one of the best. He's one of the better oh. former player analysis that we have in the league because like he he's can, so good. Oh, he's awesome. Uh, yeah. But uh, but Zach Lowe brought up the stat that uh, I think if, and, and I, I'm I'm like 80 percent sure I have the stat right. But don't take don't take me at face value at this. But anyway, uh, in 40 minutes, this series with Devin Booker off the floor, the the Suns have been uh, outscored by 37 points, which is yeah. almost a point per minute, which is outrageous. That's that's the wheels coming off, literally. So, again, like I said earlier, to me, this series completely swung on the fact that they never had to send any help at Chris Paul. Now they should, they, in theory, like if 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 the team, you know, if if this was a regular season matchup against a lesser version of the Suns team, you throw a bunch more help at Devin Booker because guys can't make shots. But by strategy, they're letting Devin Booker go, and like you said, it's not it's not your Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. 40 points on 20 shots it's 40 points on 32 shots because almost every shot Devin Booker takes is in the mid-range he you know this is something I can't even remember who it was but somebody brought up as a weakness a while back Devin Booker is actually kind of not great as an off the dribble three-point shooter this mm-hmm. is something that Jason Tatum has done a really good job early in his career is he's turned a lot of like sidestep and and lateral step step back type of threes into his repertoire so that even though he does take mid-range shots, he's getting a lot of off the dribble, high quality three point shots. That's what Chris Middleton and Paul George do super well. Um, That's now mind you, they're a little bit taller, but that's something that Devin Booker needs to add to his game so that he can be more efficient in terms of the amount of damage that he's doing per shot attempt. Um, and, and that's nitpicking because he's been unbelievable in this series, to be clear. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's really that simple. If you don't have to send help at the stars, then you could stay home on all the shooters. None of the role players get going, and you're basically begging two small guys to try to beat you. And Devin Booker's relatively small compared to stars; he's about six five. And and you know, and, and that's the thing. This is something you and I talk about all the time. Like when Giannis puts his head down and goes to the rim, you are not stopping him unless you put multiple bodies in front of him. So every single possession down the floor. Giannis is generating some form of of you know condensing of the defense, which is generating high quality shots one way or another. There were there were plays at the end of that game in Game Five where it doesn't necessarily get attributed to Giannis, but it should. Uh, there was one where uh, uh, Giannis kind of just took a really hard dribble to the left, and uh, I think it was Devin Booker or, or might have been CP3. So whoever was guarding Drew Holiday had to take a lunge step into the lane to oh, cut yeah. off to cut off Giannis. Quick swing to Drew. He closes out like it's it's a decent closeout, but Drew beats him to the baseline, and he's on his hip. It's not bad defense by any stretch of the imagination, but Drew, Drew gets all the way into the paint and kicked it out to uh, uh, to Chris Middleton, and he ended up knocking down a three. That is an advantage game play that started with Giannis drawing a second defender, which then cascaded into a wide open three for Chris Middleton. In, in crunch time of, of a pivotal playoff game. That's the thing. And this is what this is what LeBron and AD do to do all the time that we take for granted. Like if you let 
Anthony Davis and LeBron play isolation all game, the way they let Booker, it's 40 points on 20 shots because they're living at the rim. They're absolutely destroying you. Whereas with Devin Booker, it's this like heroic, like incredibly difficult shot making, which again brings a great deal of value, but it's not the same as the physical dominance that absolutely requires you to send multiple defenders at. And, and that to me has been where this series is spun. Like, all playoffs against the Lakers, against the Nuggets, and against the, the Clippers, the the Suns got all kinds of fantastic three-point shots for Crowder and for Cam Johnson and for uh, uh, for Mikhail Bridges. All those guys were just getting catch-and-shoot threes, and they're not getting any of those. Uh, uh, Zach Lowe pointed out in the pot, I think they've had 13 corner threes total in the whole series in five yeah. games. That's awful for them. Yeah, I think he said like almost three quarters that came in game two. So I think they've had yeah. like six in like four games or something. And again, that's all because they don't have to send help. Like in and I harp and I it was great to hear like Zach Lowe and Tim Legger, I think, talked about it too. Talked about how Aiden needs to be the guy. Like he needs to be able to guy that punish inside. Um and that's why I keep harping on Aiden. Because like he's the one that needs to be the inside force and he's just not he had twenty and ten last night. Like I didn't even know that until you go back and look at the stats. Like I think that kind of showed um, he wasn't really putting his stamp on the game. Like even the 20 and 10 didn't feel like it was dominating. Like it felt like his shots were just coming. Uh, they weren't really like putting pressure on Milwaukee to send extra help or anything like that. Cause um, he played four, he played 45 minutes. So it's like, it's 20 and 10, but on a per 36 basis, that's like going for 16 and seven. You know what I mean? Because he was just out there so long. Yeah, exactly. And again, he needs to be a force inside and maybe, I don't know if that's on the guards. I, I really am not sure, but like he needs to be better in Duckins. Like, and they're sending help. But like, and his kind of reaction time isn't as quick, and I don't blame him. He's in his like third year in the NBA Finals. Like, this is the most, this is the top of the top basketball level. So, um, he'll get better at that. But for them, they need him in this series to um, be a force. I'm not sure how many free throws he got. Six free throws, I think. Which again, it's just in 42 minutes. Like, that's not enough for a team that's going small as much as they did. And also. Brooke Lopez has been a lot better, I feel like. Like, he's not getting killed as he was. He's showing higher. And we talked about how Bud is, like, a reactionary puncher. I didn't expect them to punch back like this. Like, if they win tomorrow, that's four straight wins. Like, that's that's that, that's going to be tough for Phoenix to kind of sleep on. Like, you go up 2-0, you should be able to take one more. Like, this should go at least seven. Um, but Milwaukee looks in total control here. Um, they look ready. They, they went down 16 and didn't blink it felt like when i was watching the game like it didn't feel like they got startled got nervous continued to run their stuff um chris paul missed like four straight shots and that was they came back so we'll we'll see in game we'll see tonight i guess so last topic on this game before we get out of here how does phoenix go in and win in game six like what has to go right for them to me chris paul has to build on whatever he did um in game five like he hit his last five shots i thought they were in rhythm i thought they were still kind of tough shots, but it's the shots that he gets. Like he has to hit those. Those little his little patented um crossover dribble, mid-range pull up, those little step back. He has to get in any kind of rhythm to give Devin Booker some kind of uh take pressure off him. And I thought Zach Lowe made a good point. I don't know who who made this point. I don't remember if it was Zach Lowe or not, but Chris Paul's getting picked up like full court, coming up the court, and then trying to run offense. Like he's dead by the third quarter. Like they gotta have other people try to bring it up, campaign. Devin Booker maybe brings the ball up. He doesn't get as ball pressured in the backcourt. 
This something. is something you talk about all the time. Having yeah. Dennis Schroeder bring the ball up saves LeBron's legs. It's it's a, it's wasted energy to face ball pressure for no particular reason. Exactly. Chris Paul gets turned. They call it getting turned, right? He gets turned like three, four times before he gets up the court. And then the shot clock's like at 15 seconds. Then he calls up Aiden to come set a screen. Drew is on his hip. So it's not like he's getting very much separation. Comes off. Aiden's not open. Lopez still stays with him. And then it's like Chris Paul trying to create or gives it to Devin Booker for some hero shot. And that's where the shots are going. Um, Bridges and Crowder aren't getting looks. So it's basically them two taking 50% of the shots from the mid-range. That's not a winning recipe to me, even if Booker is hitting them at the rate he's hitting at. So that's where they need to go. What do you think? What, what does Phoenix have to do to, to win this uh, game six? Real quickly, did you, did you play basketball in high school at all? I did. Uh, I played at this little small school in uh, L.A., but uh, I played for like the first two years, and then uh, I got transferred to another school, so I didn't... Uh, did you ever have to do the turn your man drill? You know which one I'm talking about by any chance? Yeah, yeah, So where you like... Yeah, yeah, of course, where you uh, start at the opposite baseline, and then they dribble left, and they dribble right, and you stay with yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, for It's sure. the most common drill in basketball. Every single level, my high school teams, my, my college teams, every single team that I played on did this drill. And uh, it's like they call it turn your man five times in the length of the floor. You have to try to turn your man defensively five times. And regardless of whether you're the ball handler or the defensive player, that drill is completely exhausting. Like I always viewed oh, yeah. it as it's a, I always viewed it as a conditioning drill as much as it was a ball handling drill mixed with a you know defensive principles kind of kind of drill. And and you're right. Like it, it just it just wears you down. And you know again, there's a huge difference between like uh, 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 40 minutes playing one way and 40 minutes playing, you know, a different, less intense way. Like I'm going to go play pickup this afternoon and I'm probably going to walk up the floor a lot of the possessions and I might play for an hour and a half and it's going to be super light and easy. But like if I was playing 25 minutes in a high-level competitive game where I have much more responsibilities, I'm going to be completely beaten, exhausted. It's, it is crazy how much of a difference that kind of thing uh, that kind of thing makes. But anyway, as far as getting uh, a win down in uh, down in Milwaukee, I think it starts and ends with avoiding the first punch. Uh, if you can somehow weather that first, we're going to win the title tonight punch that comes in front of that home crowd and then just hang in there long enough to where crunch time offense becomes an issue for Milwaukee because all year long, the Suns were an extremely good clutch team. And the Bucks had their issues in crunch time. One of the things that's been kind of a revelation in this series is how great Chris Middleton has been at the end of these games. He's always been a gifted closer in terms of his ability to create his own shot. But in this particular postseason, he's been more consistent. It used to be he was an inconsistent type of closer in these games. He's made gigantic shots in this playoff run, including... The shot, uh, the little turnaround uh, around the free throw line that beat the Brooklyn Nets, literally in overtime of Game 7. This guy in Game 4 and in Game 5 made big shot after big shot. You just, if if he, you know, uh, returns to the mean a little bit, so to speak, and Giannis is forced to make some of those decisions, you might be able to steal this game. And again, if you steal this game, historically... Game seven at home, the home team usually wins. It's like the percentage is in the high 70s, if I I remember correctly. So to me, it's about keeping it close to where your advantage can take effect, which is in crunch time. As far as uh, how to keep it close, it's extremely smart and uh, 
um, uh, a disciplined defense. Milwaukee has struggled to score in the half court. They've scored well in transition. In yeah. the half court, it's been very physical. It's been very rudimentary. So if you have your principles intact and you're and you're positioning yourself between them and the rim, you'll force them to make shots and they might go on a cold stretch. And then from there, in the half court offensively for the Suns, you got to get something out of Chris Paul. If all that goes, the, uh, if those things, if those boxes are checked, which is very doable, then mm-hmm. it's just about a few shots here or there at the end of the game, and you might be able to steal this one and send it back to uh, send it back to Phoenix. Did you have anything else on this game before we move on? Uh, yeah, well, I guess like my only thing was that, like I feel like they overreacted a little bit to Holiday um, and Middleton uh, once they hit a few jump shots. I thought they really kind of closed out hard. I feel like you can't overreact to that. You can't take away that and Middleton and Giannis at the rim. Like you, you can't do all three and their shooters. Like you have to pick something. And I'm gonna live with Holiday and Middleton trying to hit. Uh, shots off the dribble through the whole game hopefully that you know goes to the uh advantage but that's that's the only thing i guess i would say but chris paul has to be better man like i expected more from one of my favorite point guards i'm seeing him get dragged um through this whole time um but uh yeah it's it's tough watching him kind of struggle he he does some weird stuff but uh i feel like he's one of the legends and uh i thought he would get his ring this year but um he hasn't he hasn't come to par so we'll we'll see he hasn't been the first guy to face a big road game six. Uh, it's yeah, certainly within the realm of possibility that this could be his moment. This could be the, his his shining moment. But it's he's got to go. He's got to go do it. And for yeah. the record, I think a lot of the Chris Paul, like Chris Paul, is objectively unlikable because of all the stuff that he does. This is something you and mm-hmm. I have talked about a lot. But I, I do think some of the criticism sent his way has gone a little too far. I mean, at the end of the day, he is a six foot tall point guard, and expecting him to go out and do what. Steph Curry does or Kyrie Irving does is, is just not necessarily fair. Those guys, Kyrie Irving 6'2", Steph is 6'3". They're both more athletic. It's, it's, just, it's just difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anyway, let's, let's move on to the, to the Lakers aspect of this. So you and I spoke after game uh, six against the Suns when I got back from vacation. We talked about the, the missing shot making on the, on the, uh, on the Lakers. The, we, we just watched Phoenix. It was like... Man, Mikael Bridges would put the ball on the floor and get to the 15-foot line, and he would elevate and knock down a shot. And you're like, man, who's doing that on the Lakers? Like, who is a guy who can attack a closeout in a more complicated way than just shooting an open three or ripping through all the way to the basket and make a you know make those kind of secondary and tertiary uh, you know counters when they when they attack a closeout? And there was just nobody on the roster that could do that. Well. The truth of the matter is, is Milwaukee's kind of that same type of team. Like, I mean, Chris Middleton is a streaky jump shooter who doesn't really try to get into the lane much at all. I mean, Drew Holiday, I I have to, you know, eat my words a little bit because I said that he's pretty much average at everything. One of the revelations with Drew Holiday in this series is he's actually a much better passer than I think we give him credit for. His ability to create open shots for his teammates has been actually pretty amazing. But what Milwaukee is doing, for the most part, outside of Chris Middleton's more complicated jump shooting, is they're just putting their head down and going to the rim because they're the right. bigger, stronger team. It's almost like a, it's almost like that, that like perimeter shack type of mentality where it's just like drive right if they cut you off, spin back left and keep going, and if they cut you off there, spin back right and keep like they're just putting their head down and they're getting to the rim. And so from that standpoint, you know the Lakers are incredibly well-equipped to play that style of basketball. And I think at the end of the day, like we forget that the Lakers 
kind of manhandled the Suns in games two and game three. It looks kind of like these Milwaukee wins over 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 the Suns. And so I think maybe that doesn't mean that the, the Lakers shouldn't look for some sort of uh, additional playmaker, someone a la C.J. McCollum is the guy I've got my eyes on. However, you know, if if they can't get anybody, I don't think it's it's time yet to just pretend like this is is, you know, uh, uh, a team that needs to be drastically changed because they have a better version, in my opinion, of this Milwaukee formula. You know, I think I, uh, you probably, this probably isn't the summer to say it, but I think LeBron is a better version of Giannis, a guy that if you, you have to send help to the rim or he's just going to bully you to the basket every time, except for he's going to make all these correct passes all over the place and he can uh, uh, beat you as a jump shooter off the dribble. And then you've got uh, uh, Anthony Davis, who's, arguably as physically dominant as Giannis or is capable of being as physically dominant as Giannis. So I think like, I think at the end of the day, this series has been a lesson that there may one day be a time when skill and shot making can take over the NBA, but I don't think it's yet. And, and right now it still appears to favor the more physically dominant team. The one that can thrive in this rock fight environment. Yeah, it's always like a yin and yang, right? It's always like working back and forth. Like if you go too much in one way, then you're susceptible to being attacked in the other way. So that's kind of how I see it. Man, like just watching Phoenix, like they swept the Denver Nuggets, even though, you know, they were out for some people. Um, they beat what Portland and did they play Portland? Who did they play? They played uh, they played Denver and us. And who was who they play in the West? The Clippers. Yeah, yeah. The Clippers, so they, yeah. They up 2-0 on the Clippers. But, um, yeah, we, we forget, man. Like, the Lakers were up 2-1, shooting, what, 20% from three in most of these games, um, beating with the physicality. And you're seeing a lot of similar stuff. Like, their players are wearing down. I thought Drake Crowder was, Jay Crowder was starting to get worn down in the Lakers series as well. Um, but, yeah, man, when you have LeBron and AD, that's kind of your baseline level. And they're going to create open shots. Uh, man, they would kill this small lineup. Like, I just think about what they did to Houston last year. We forget, man, people pick the Rockets. A lot of smart basketball people, Zach Lowe included. You know, I love Zach Lowe, one of my favorite analysts. He picked the Houston Rockets to beat the Lakers because that style was killing. That was a new style. James Harden, Russell Westbrook, small ball. Um, They had, what, P.J. Tucker at the five, which is kind of funny. with seeing P.J. Tucker doing what he's doing now. But very similar. They ran very similar offense, spread out. James Harden in the Giannis role a little bit. He's not Giannis, obviously, but just in terms of the heliocentricism. And, um, yeah, then the Lakers obviously said, okay, um, we're going to do 80 at the five, and I dare you to switch every action. And they did. End up with Robert Covington, um, with the other guy they have, the guy that kicked out of the bubble, Daniel House, you mm-hmm. know, ending up on AD, and it was just laughable. AD got whatever he wanted. And then we forget against Portland, they had to start Hassan Whiteside and Nurkic together just to match up with the size. So it's just funny to look at that like that's where i think i would kind of build on um the season is tough to kind of gauge i think there's things to improve and all that but yeah physicality still wins the day if you can have both that's the whole point right yeah versatility you you don't have to choose ad and lebron are also skilled like these aren't like seven footers with no you know handle or who can't you know dribble or catch the ball or any kind of stuff like that these are highly skilled also physical players that use both LeBron uses physicality to also supplement the skill, which I think is uh, is best of both worlds. And we're seeing Giannis just tear through them, and I just can't imagine what a healthy LeBron would have done. He obviously was not himself in that Phoenix series. So, um, But, yeah, I agree with you. I think this is something to build on. 
Yeah, and you know that versatility is key because the the story of this series is Milwaukee physically dominating them. But at the right. end of the day, at the end of these games, it's a lot of surgical stuff from Chris Middleton. A lot of you know really high level shot making over contests. You know off the dribble. Uh, like tough shot making from Chris Middleton. And so that's where the versatility is key. And that's why, you know, uh, like even, even when you watched those, those uh, um, uh, Lakers wins over the Suns, like there was in game two, it was like, uh, uh, it was LeBron taking and making really tough off the dribble jump shots in the late third quarter, quarter and early fourth quarter that kind of put them over the top, you know, and, and, yeah. you know, uh, in their championship run, it was like, we're physically dominating you, but there was a lot of really high level shot making from LeBron and Anthony Davis. And so having a guy like CJ McCollum in the mix, just to add even more high level shot making to that Laker roster while also having the ability to physically dominate teams is definitely intriguing. I think, I think that that's the kind of move that they need to try to make. But yeah, at the end of the day, your, your core identity needs to be something that is proven to work in this late round playoff type of environment. And that means you need to be able to physically dominate every position. You can't have uh, too many you can't have more than basically maybe one thin player on the perimeter everybody like you can probably get away with a schroeder but you can't yeah. get away with like a schroeder and a campaign type of guard like that those chris paul campaign lineups are getting destroyed in this buck series um and then and then you need to have guys that in the half court when things really slow down that can generate quality shots in that type of physical uh, uh environment and so the lakers have that core identity that, that that's in their core that's who they are they've been that for two years and so as long as they keep that and make little moves on the periphery periphery to add a little bit of versatility here or there i think they're i think they're on the right path so, um, so we- I have a question for you because, like, we talked all year about the Lakers' kind of defensive guards, right? They have really good defensive guard play. Schroeder, KCP is really good at locking, trailing, chasing guys. Alex Caruso, I think, I don't know if you would agree, is our best probably perimeter defender. He has the size and kind of the speed. I'm more biased in this, so I want to ask you, like, can Caruso do 75% of what Drew Holiday is kind of doing here? Like, is he at that kind of ta- I don't know, probably doesn't have the talent of Drew Holiday or the physicality but like do you think he can kind of assume a little of that because when I watch Drew like defend like this it reminds me of watching Caruso but like I'm more biased I watch 100 more Laker games than any other team do you kind of see that or is that like or is Caruso kind of another tier of defender of Drew Holiday in terms of chasing like a guy like Chris Paul and making him work for everything I think Caruso is is near that level. Um, okay. Now, the reason why I wouldn't say he's at that level is mainly has to do with out of respect to Drew Holiday, the fact that Drew Holiday does it for 40 minutes a night every night for yeah. the last basically a decade. Um, whereas Caruso has been doing it in a limited role. He's playing usually, you know, between 20, 25 minutes a night and doesn't have the same amount of offensive responsibility, blah, blah, blah. But I think Caruso is an absolute wrecking ball defensively. And I think he does it in a similar way to Drew Holiday. He does it at the guard position as a big, strong player in an environment where physicality is allowed. He just bumps people off their spots and he's really good with his hands. He's good at not fouling. It's all the extra effort stuff, never quits on a play, all that stuff. I think I think that in that role, that's what you're getting. And for the record, this was something uh, Pete from Laker Film Room brought up in a podcast. I think it was yesterday uh, when he was talking about how, like, sometimes the Lakers would just come out with lineups where it was, you know, mm-hmm. LeBron, AD, 
Andre Drummond, Kuzma, and Caruso, and you're like, you're you're, you're going seven foot, seven foot, six nine, six nine, six five, or six six, or whatever, and everybody's strong. And, right. and Drew, Drew, Drew Holiday kind of is that for Milwaukee. He's the the ability to have like a small uh, guy on the floor, but at the same time, one that doesn't uh, sacrifice your physical identity as a team. And that's what Caruso is. And, you know, like you and I said all year, when push comes to shove for the Lakers, you can talk about Drummond and whether or not he helps to play him. You can talk right. about Kuzma. You can talk about, you know, uh, which guards to play. But at the end of the day, it's like when when it when the chips were down, it was always going to be LeBron AD, you know, uh, Caruso, KCP, and either Kuzma or Wesley Matthews, depending on who had it going that night. At the end of the day, they were going to go with just a really basic uh, defense heavy lineup and have all the shot creation go through through LeBron and, and AD. And so, you know, at the end of the day, like like the, all this other stuff doesn't matter as much as long as your core group can get the job done. That's what's happening with, with Milwaukee is no matter how crazy it gets, you fall down by 16 points in the first quarter of a, of a, of a crazy game in Phoenix. It's like when we go to Giannis and Chris Middleton and PJ Tucker and Pat Connaughton and Drew Holiday, they can't score on us and we're physically bullying them on the other end. And so it's just, it's at the end of the day, it's like, who's your guys? You know what I mean? And Caruso, regardless of whether or not he's on the same level of Drew Holiday, I know that I can count on Caruso to be that guy with that group and be near as impactful on the defensive end, which is all you really need him to be in that lineup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what I was wondering. I feel like the Lakers kind of simulate what Milwaukee was doing here in terms of chasing guys over. It just reminds me of their defense. Like, I remember when they had uh, Caruso on Dame for the whole first round, pretty much, and kind of forced Dame to kind of handle a bunch of physicality for the whole round. Obviously, they sent help when they're supposed to and all that. But just that's what's reminding me of watching Drew just absolutely take Chris Paul out. Now, Chris Paul is not Dame. He's not the age or the scoring threat anymore. But just watching him absolutely eliminate him. Um, Devin Booker's getting free as well, but just on the switches with Drew, it's it's cool to watch a defensive masterclass like this. Like I feel like that should be louder than the Chris Paul is choking. Like that's a very easy kind of narrative to put out there, but just looking at the basketball of it, it's cool to watch a guy step up like this. And this is not the first time Drew Holiday has done this. Um, he did this to Damian Lillard in uh when he was in New Orleans as well. Like this is he has a reputation for this, um, and CJ McCollum as well to a lesser extent. So. Like I feel like that should be louder. This is one of the best maybe defensive guards that we've seen ever. Instead of just yeah. ever, yeah. Instead of just saying Chris Paul chokes, like that's a that. I mean, I guess you can say that, but that's not really the story to me. That's happening it, on the court at least. The story is Drew Holiday is making it hell for him to get any separation for a six one six two guard. So I, I just want to ask you that because I think it's interesting. The Lakers kind of build off that. Caruso is a free agent, which makes this even more kind of fascinating here to to see. Yeah, it, it, like it, uh, Tim Legler said, Drew Holiday's built like a um, uh, built like an NFL strong safety. Is what he yeah. said. And you know, and Car- Caruso is too, which is crazy because like I'm I'm uh, I'm six six and I weigh about two thirty, so I'm pretty strong for a guy my size. But like you look at a picture of Alex Caruso with his shirt off, and you're like, oh, there's another level to this. <laughs> like like uh, Alex Caruso probably doesn't weigh quite as much as me because I have a bunch of weight in my legs. But like he's so physically strong and powerful in his upper body 
that you can tell like when he there's like little bits of contact that you can get away with in basketball because the refs don't like to blow their whistle all the time that's kind of like a yeah. fallacy they 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 do their jobs but if they 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 would prefer to not be heavily involved in the game so like these little little forearm chucks here little hands here that kind of stuff is is allowed well when you're as strong as Alex Caruso is or if you're built like an NFL strong safety the way that Drew Holiday is those little bumps and little chucks completely throw you off balance. And yeah. and all of a sudden, like, you know, taking a little turnaround jump shot, instead of you elevating and getting a good clean look at the rim, now you're like jumping almost at a 45 degree angle because uh, you're off balance. And when you're getting into the lane and you're trying to finish strong at the rim, now you're fading away from the basket and throwing some crazy hook shot up because Caruso or Drew just kind of bumped you a little bit and the ref didn't call it. That that kind of stuff is is all part of that uh, advantage. And, you know, and, and for, for the record, with the way the game is officiated, when you get into these late rounds, it kind of turns into this, you know, mono mono physical matchup, like who's, who's bigger, who's stronger, who's faster kind of deal. And, you know, and the, the Warriors are always pointed to as the skill team that, that got over the top. But like I like we always forget they were a top, they were top three defense almost every season there in the first three years that they, that they were in the finals. And it was like Andre Iguodala is every bit as, as physically imposing as, as, uh, as the best big wings in the league. And, Draymond Green was Draymond Green did a lot of that to Kevin Love like Kevin Love would post up and he'd turn and face and he'd do a little jab step he'd do a little like back down dribble and Draymond would just little shove little push here and he'd be way off balance and next thing you know it's like oh like I can't even get a shot off against this guy you know what I mean yeah so the Warriors were a very physically imposing team then you threw Kevin Durant into the mix as this like seven foot freak who when he was trying on defense was like 90 percent of Anthony Davis like that kind of thing that made them very physically imposing they just also had the high-end shot making that came from Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant made them so tough to beat um, mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to uh, this this bag Twitter thing. So, as Raj and I were talking before the show, uh, uh, him and I, I, I basically sat that one out because I was pretty annoyed by it, and I just didn't want to be a part of it. Raj listened to the uh, the space a little, the spaces a little bit, and heard some of the stuff. Uh, but this has been. This has been an extremely uh, uh, popular topic over basically the last like couple of years because there was the big thing with, uh, you know, LeBron and his weird pullback three point shot and how people talked about how like this was his go to move and he's killing the league with this move because he has no bag. And then it was the Giannis stuff and the Giannis first James Harden stuff and then it was like, oh, who's on the Mount Rushmore of scores? Can we can we include LeBron James on the Mount Rushmore of scores when he doesn't have all these polished moves like some of these other guys? And and then it you know climaxed with this whole thing uh, with Giannis in the finals, which led to uh, perhaps the most ridiculous uh, uh, graphic I've ever seen in my life. And uh, like you said earlier, we're not going to dunk on on, on Rashad Phillips here. That's not the point. We want to have an interesting conversation surrounding this. But the premise was that guys like John Stockton and Clay Thompson and Giannis Antetokounmpo and Tim Duncan were basketball players, but not hoopers, Uh, which fundamentally doesn't make any sense because I would argue that Clay Thompson and Tim Duncan in particular are two and John Stockton are, are they're just incredibly skilled basketball players. Um, They just didn't do things the way that, you know, other players, different archetypes did it. So, 
I guess before before we get too much further into it, let me just ask you this: like, what was your reaction when you saw that graphic, and and what's your kind of macro worldview on the whole skill versus uh, impact type of discussion? Yeah, it's tough because like obviously I didn't play super high level basketball, but anyone who's got into any played, I don't care where you played, high school, middle school, like if you play in open runs in 24, like you'll meet people who are like trying to, you know, be professional basketball players in whatever level. Like I remember I would play in a run at 24 as a guy trying to play, who's trying to make the G league. Um, uh, he was trying to make the G league roster and he absolutely would kill in those runs, like destroy us. And I'm like, man, this is the level of dudes like in the, like if you go watch G league games and watch dudes play like these dudes, it's so hard to even make that level. And I think, just once you like the the argument is uh, one of the guys was making. I think it was Tony. Was like once you become an all star, you're automatically a hooper. And for me, the levels like once you make the NBA, like 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 I don't believe you can really make the NBA without having some sort of love of hoop. I mean, there are very rare exceptions. Um, like people use Andrew Wiggins as an example of a guy who might not really love basketball the way he does. Uh, but I mean, that's also, I don't know Andrew Wiggins, so I don't know if he does or doesn't, but like, that's my biggest picture with that. Like saying Tim Duncan doesn't love basketball. is such a, doesn't, I'm sorry, isn't a hooper. It's just such a weird thing to say. Tim Duncan's the best power forward. Like they even said Tim Duncan's the best power forward ever, but he's not a hooper. Well, that, that, that doesn't really make, sense to me so let me ask you a question because this is a question that was asked in that thing and um it really threw me it really threw me off do you think john stockton would be able to score in the drew league absolutely there's there's no question um you know i think that uh i think that aesthetics end up being the driving force behind most of this stuff people gravitate towards specific types of basketball players you know what i mean and um, that, that's kind of the funny part about, uh, about me being a LeBron fan. Like my, me, my, my fanhood of LeBron has a lot more to do with him getting me interested in basketball, despite the fact that my family didn't really expose me to basketball, um, more than it has to do with me being a fan of the type of game that he has, you know, like for me personally, I've always been a scorer. Like I, I play a lot more like a Devin Booker type of player than I do like a LeBron. I'm not a great passer. It's actually a weakness in, in my game. I don't see the floor as well as as really good passers do uh, uh, in 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 the local hoop scene here. So like when I play with the men's league, I try to find a guy who can be a more traditional playmaker because it kind of complements my skill set more. And you know, uh, uh, the reality is is like you talk to five random guys, you know, two of them are going to gravitate towards a Kobe archetype of basketball player. And three of them are going to gravitate towards a LeBron archetype of basketball player. People are just fans of different styles. I do think that people highly underestimate how skilled these guys are. Like you guys probably, you, you guys probably see me post a lot of basketball videos on, on, on Twitter. I post those basketball videos because I'm addicted to the game. And because I'm, I know I'm entering this phase, I turned 30 this year where I've got like five years here where I can have like a five year stretch where I'm at my absolute peak as a basketball player. And I really want to enjoy it. And I really want to maximize it. And I really want to have fun with it. But let me make one thing perfectly clear. I am nowhere near good enough to play in the NBA, not even remotely close. That's how good those guys are. You see me take every conceivable turnaround jump shot. You see me take every conceivable step back jump shot. I have all the dribble moves. I have all the stuff that you would qualify as a bag. And I am nowhere near even remotely qualified 
to play in the NBA. If you put me on the Lakers roster, I would get manhandled in their practices. I am not, I am not even remotely close to that level. What you have to understand is like these guys, even the ones you don't think of as someone who's particularly skilled, they, they shrink their games down to fit into a role in the NBA. Exactly. And that is the key difference there. You know, like, like, a, like if you, Clay Thompson plays a fundamentally sound, shrunken version of his game to fit within a championship concept alongside one of the 10 best basketball players ever. Clay Thompson takes mostly on balance jump shots with a really quick release, and then he adds a little bit of stuff off the move, but that's about it. If you went and played pickup with Clay Thompson, he'd be doing seven dribble step back threes to his right, seven dribble step back threes to his left. He'd be doing stuff out of the post. He'd be doing stuff everywhere. He's capable of all of that. He shrinks his game to fit within the the championship concept. Same thing goes with Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan is the epitome of a player who has embraced the fact that a simplified version of his game would lead to championships. He didn't need to do the Kevin Garnett crazy fadeaways. He didn't need to do the Anthony Davis multiple dribbles between his legs feeding into each shot. He simplified it down to a handful of moves, a little face-up banker, little hook shots here, drop steps there. He incredibly simplified his game and made it based on power and fundamentals, and nobody could nobody nobody could mess with him as a result of that. And so I think a lot of times people view simplifying the game as a weakness, you know, like like uh, uh, going with rudimentary, more dependable, fundamental skills as a weakness when in reality it is a player making a conscious decision to simplify his game to try to impact winning within within his team concept. There are players out there, guys like Kyrie Irving, you know, guys like Devin Booker, where their physical tools aren't really what they need to be to have a rudimentary, basic approach to the game. They have to use smoke and mirrors. They have to use misdirection. They have to use change of pace and counters on top of counters mm-hmm. on top of counters to get to their spots because otherwise they wouldn't be able to get shots off. That, that's by necessity. That's completely different. But at the end of the day, every single player, their impact on winning is a combination of their physical tools, their skill set, and their basketball IQ. And if you're strong in two of those areas and weak in one, regardless of what it is, you'll be fine. But you got to be strong in other areas to compensate. If you don't have great physical tools, you better be incredibly smart and incredibly skilled. If you don't have a great basketball IQ, you better have great physical tools and you better be able to put the ball in the basket because you're going to become a weaponized scorer in your offense and, and, and so on and so forth. LeBron is more like a really great physical tools and really great IQ kind of guy. And he's somewhat weak in the, in the skill set area, but he has enough there and he's so good in the other two areas that he's maybe the best basketball player ever. But at the end of the day, you have to have some combination of those things and it would be a complete, this is the last thing I'll say, this, it would be a complete waste of Giannis's time to go into this summer and be like, I am going to try to replicate everything that Devin Booker did in that NBA Finals. <laughs> because it would take him years to develop that skill set, and it would be, he doesn't need to get as much separation as Devin Booker. Devin Booker needs to get so much separation to get that shot off. Giannis would be better off taking almost a Tim Duncan-esque approach working on a handful of really rudimentary uh, post moves, mid-post moves 
that he will be able to get off without much separation that can be really dependable moves for him. And getting caught up in the aesthetics of things just means you don't have your priorities straight. And you sure, you sure as hell shouldn't be trying to impress the Rashad Phillipses of the world. That's not, that, that's not going to help you win basketball games. You need to figure out how you can win within your team concept. Yeah, and I feel like I don't even want to use names like Tim Duncan, Clay Thompson. Like that's to me should be obvious. You throw Tim Duncan anywhere in the world, he's gonna dominate. You throw Clay Thompson anywhere in the world, you can dominate. But you can even go at the lesser dudes. Like I think there is a conversation to be had. There are players who can't translate that street kind of game to the NBA, right? We've we've seen that a lot where players really struggle, or even if they do translate, they're not the star that they were because like if you look in the G League, there's a lot of guys who average 25, 30 in college or whatever, and they can't translate that into a role because in the league, you already have 25 to 30 point scores, right? Mm-hmm. Alex Crusoe talks about this a lot. Um, a lot of guys don't know the role they're applying for. Like they go into the G League and think they're going to be the scorer when in, to be honest, every team has a score already. They're looking for guys to do other things. Alex Crusoe, if he wants, he can go to any pickup game in the world and go drop 35 40 because he's Alex Caruso is playing the damn NBA. Those guys can do that. Like that's where I'm like, that's where it's so tough for me. I think the Tim Duncan stuff is obvious. Clay Thompson stuff is obvious. Those guys obviously are lessering the world. These dudes are all stars in the best world in the world, best league in the world. But you go to any guy, Quinn cook, he would dominate like this Hooper basketball kind of conversation. I think it's true. There are players who can't translate it, but I think once you have a long NBA career, like Lou Williams is a guy that people think about a lot. Didn't really have to change his game that much, but he's still like you throw Lou Williams and Lou Williams is both a basketball player and a hooper to me because he can do both. Like he, he's obviously had a 15 year career. You don't get a 15 year career. if You can't play basketball, but he's a guy that used um, Jamal Crawford as well. Um, a guy who's had a 15 year career as a six man. You think coaches are going to play a dude that can't, that doesn't know basketball for who's won multiple six man of the year awards. That that's where it just doesn't, uh, compute for me these guys are amazing go go to nba nba game and go watch the 15th man shoot just not gonna miss like he doesn't that dude does not miss when you watch him in warm-up so it's just it's funny when i see the conversation i think i think you're right we don't give these dudes enough credit for just how good they are they're in the one percent of the one percent of the one percent of what they do and uh yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at with this conversation. Yeah, like let's use John Stockton as an example, you know, in the mm-hmm. Drew League. This was one of the, the things that got brought up, you know. Yeah. Uh, my, my guess is that John Stockton could face up with some defender in the Drew League and do some variation of step backs off the dribble shots and make a decent percentage of them off the dribble. But one of the big reasons why he didn't do much of that in the NBA is because in the NBA, going against NBA guard defenders, guys like Gary Payton, he wasn't really able to get those types of shots off. And so he mm-hmm. turned his, he used screens to get an advantage. You know what I mean? Right. And, and for the record, there's pride doesn't amount to anything on the scoreboard. Okay. If I'm, if I'm in a matchup with a guy, like there's a guy here in town. His name is Brian. He's one of the best perimeter defenders that I've ever played against. And I see him every once in a while. And when he comes up against me, I have two options. I can either out of pride, try to score on the guy, which, you know, I can usually get to my spot and get to some kind of jump shot. Some days I make them, some days I don't. But at the end of the day, why, if I'm trying to win the game, why am I trying to isolate Brian? Why don't I get a screen involved and try to get either working in some sort of screen and roll action or get a different defender on me? Because all I really care about is winning. So why don't I get an advantage somewhere else on the floor? 
John Stockton would probably go up to the Drew League and think, okay, I'm going to get into screen and roll with this this random super athletic center that's on my team that I can throw lobs to, and I'm going to get my defender on my backside instead of playing him in isolation, and I'm going to either shoot floaters or layups at the rim or throw passes to the big man or if they rotate out to shooters. Like His approach to the game is 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 built around this idea that he has a specific skill set and he can make that impact basketball games in this specific way. And that specific way is going to be different than the way Kyrie Irving would use his skill set to impact the game. And 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 that preference there turned into this like basketball players versus hoopers thing which is so stupid to me and insulting honestly to what those guys do. And so the real question is is it's like with that spectrum that we talked about with basketball IQ, skill set, and physical tools, that's how you really identify these players is, you know, like I would say that Giannis, even like when we're ranking players at the end of the season, you're going to have players who, who kind of gravitate to his play style who think he's the best player in the league. You know, me, I tend to prioritize, you know, that playmaking, basketball IQ, shot making a little bit more than other people do. So I'm going to gravitate. I'm probably going to put him fourth behind Steph, KD and LeBron, because I think those guys in what they provide in the other areas of the game is a little bit more impactful. But we can argue that all day long. You know what your preference is, if you value physical dominance or if you value shot making or if you value skill. But none of those is inherently or proven to be better than the other. They're all in uh, Samus Fondiari from Warriors Twitter always talks about this. Like every star, it just comes down to their supporting cast. Like if you gave Kevin Durant the perfect list of 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 co uh, of of role players that match his skill set perfectly, but I put LeBron with a mismatched skill set of role players that doesn't really complement him super well. KD's team might win, even if there's no other stars on either team. And vice versa. If I give LeBron a boatload of shooters who can defend, and he's just driving and kicking and driving to the basket all day long, but Kevin Durant is playing with a a group of players that doesn't necessarily match his skill set, LeBron's going to win that matchup. At the the end of the day, you know, your individual skill set and whether or not you win usually has a lot more to do with what's around you than with what you're doing. And and I think I think this last couple of years has been such a great example of that because we've seen Kevin Durant lose to Giannis. And I think Kevin Durant was a better player. We saw LeBron beat Steph in the play-in game, and LeBron wasn't even very good in that game. Steph was out of this world, but the Lakers were a more physically imposing and 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 dialed in defensive team who eventually wore them down and and made some big shots late and they won. Like basketball, we have to get away from this mono mono aspect of basketball because we've come too far in that direction. You know, we we kind of ebb back and forth and we've gone too far into overanalyzing what one guy does when we're watching these games and it's so obviously dependent on the five-man unit and how they complement each other and how they complement their star. Because there's a version of this series where Devin Booker looks like the best player. Because yeah. everything complements him. Maybe he makes another big shot in game four and they win the series in five. You might have guys sitting here going, Devin Booker's better than Giannis. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like that that's that's kind of the way this discourse goes. And so I I, I just get frustrated with it because I don't think I don't think from Hoopers too, like Rashad Phillips is a basketball player. That dude he was that, that I retweeted this morning that he was talking to, dude's a basketball player. Those two guys should have more respect 
for what these guys do to build their skill set to fit within a championship concept. And it is so deeply disrespectful for them to, to undercut that or to overly simplify that, to overly simplify Clay Thompson into a role player when he's a role player by design and he could go to your favorite team and drop 27 a night if he wanted to. You know what I mean? And I, I, I just think, I hope that we can delineate between the, uh, that type of discourse and real basketball discourse. No, for sure. And again, like dunking on that is like the, the, the rim is lowered so low that like I feel like it's very easy to to dunk on. But like my only issue was like because Kendrick Perkins kind of brought this up, who I think gets a lot more shit than he should. I think he's good on TV and everything. But like he was talking about his kind of thing of Hooper versus basketball player was a Hooper was a guy who loves to hoop. Right. So he brought up Kevin Durant, brought up J.R. Smith, um, brought up Jamal Crawford. These guys that go hoop in these summer league runs and stuff like that all summer. And to me, just because like you don't have like a dribble pull up or you're not on TV all the time doesn't mean you don't love to go hoop. Like I feel like most of these obviously there's levels. I don't think everyone loves it the same. But I think when you reach the NBA, like you have to have some sort of love for the game, at least because the competition's too high. Like love for the game is a baseline like that's a starting point like you can't even get to where you were even use an example where like a role player gets to without some kind of love because of the work that it takes right it's a lot of hard work to get to even become a role player in the nba become a three and d wing the amount of shots you have to take per day the amount of whatever you have to do to become a role player that work is so much that like i feel like your love for the game has to be at some kind of baseline level like for me i i don't hit dribble pull up shots i know my role when i play a pickup game i like to stay in the corner i like to take catch and shoot i play defense i know my role it doesn't mean i don't love to hoop i love to go play runs just because i can't hit dribble pull up doesn't mean that i don't love like the game like and that's where i they they kept saying that hooper versus basketball player isn't you know there's nothing wrong with either but like calling lebron a basketball player and not a hooper it just has a negative connotation to it. It just of course does. it has like, a negative connotation. Yeah, so it's veiled so like, insult. <laughs> exactly, but like they kept saying, there's nothing wrong with either. But it's just that's LeBron freaking James. Like, how is he not? He's playing basketball at 36 with all the money in the world. Does not need to play. Could could stop playing tomorrow and have money for hundreds of generations. How could that man not love to play basketball? Like that's the that's the part to me which is just so strange about the conversation where it's like that that doesn't make any sense like i think there's a legitimate conversation between guys who play a really fundamental role and guys who kill it at the runs and guys who can't translate that to the nba i think that's a real conversation like how do we get guys who average 40 in the drew league to get into the nba and make play a role into it that's a real convo to have this is just i I don't know what to do with this conversation. Like this is putting Clay Thompson, LeBron James, separating them, saying they couldn't do what these dudes who are hoopers do is is just false to me. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I loved what you said about how people's love of the game can manifest in different ways. I feel the same way about competitiveness. Like people always try to draw this line between LeBron and Kobe and MJ as a competitor. And mm-hmm. it just because it looks different, like LeBron and or MJ and Kobe are kind of assholes who are like super mean muggy. They and 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 you know demonstrative with their with their seeming hatred towards the competition. Whereas LeBron is more boisterous and and jovial and happy and 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 positive looking. But at the same time, it's like LeBron is freakishly competitive. Like he's every bit as competitive as those guys. You know how, like you said. You know, because he's won so much. Like competitive people 
have a, uh, people that are that competitive, it, t- it, it requires that to achieve right. that level of success in the NBA. And the same, and the same goes for, for the love of the game. Like, you know, uh, I, I happen to be the type of guy that like, I love basketball in a way to where I no no pickup run is beneath me. Like all uh, I've played in pickup games uh, with all NBA players before uh, at the university of Arizona where I've got, you know, seven or eight NBA players in the, in the, on the court and I play a certain way and I, and I'm, I'm excited and I'm energetic in that environment, but then I'll go to, you know, on a random, like last night I went to an LA fitness. I haven't gone to an LA fitness in, in months and I just popped into an LA fitness and I was playing against, you know, I like Mike Dickerson was there. He played in the NBA, but uh, most of the guys there were like, dudes who were lifting weights who walked into the gym and 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 can barely dribble with their head up but i had a lot of fun because i love the game in a way to where that runs not beneath me like i i love i love playing regardless of the setting and but then you have guys that come out of tucson there's a handful of guys out of tucson that have played professionally overseas or in the nba and and you know, there's a guy named Bryce Cotton who's played in the played in the NBA. He's been a multiple time MVP of the NBL out in Australia, and like I never see that guy around. And he and he lives here in the off season because when he comes home, like he just doesn't like playing pickup. So I'll like he he'll just go do individual workouts, and I'll see him maybe once every two or three years at a pickup run. But he's not he doesn't really show up much and. And mm-hmm. it's not because he doesn't love the game. It's just because that's the way that he chooses to approach the game. He he loves to work individually. He views pickup as beneath him for whatever reason, and and th- that's the way that he prefers to approach the game. And and everyone is is different. Some people love some people love basketball, but don't like watching the NBA. Some people love oh, yeah. that. Like I love basketball. I don't like watching college hoops because college hoops is so the level of skill versus the level of defense and athleticism is out of balance. And so mm. everyone is so athletic and so dialed in defensively, but the shot making isn't there. So the games are just boring to me. There's not enough shot making. There's not enough ability to create open shots for teammates. It's kind of janky to me. So I will watch college hoops, but I'm I'm not a huge fan of watching college hoops. It doesn't mean I don't love basketball. And so yeah, exactly. I agree with you. It just it, it just bothers me. Everyone, everyone, you know. Uh, it, it, this is the last thing I'll say about it. Uh, uh, Pete in his podcast about two weeks ago, he did one where he talked about uh, his his rise in NBA media and how he got to where he was. And same thing for Mike Trudell. And, and one of the things, yeah, awesome show. And one of the things that Pete said was like, you know, I, I think it's so important for up and coming people who are trying to succeed in this business to make sure that their individual relationship with basketball is exposed in the show, because it's that your genuine love for basketball, your genuine relationship with basketball will reflect with more passion than if you had an artificial approach or you were trying to pretend to be something you're not, you know, that's why I think it's so important for you and I, as we do this, not to try to become what someone else does, but I'm going to talk about basketball the way I like to talk about basketball and you're going to do the same. And that will naturally manifest in, in a more entertaining product because we're going to give a shit about what we're saying. And it's not going to be a skip Bayless artificial approach to things. It's going to be genuine and, and and I think I think that it's important to acknowledge that we can all have a different approach in that regard, and that it doesn't mean we don't love the game. 
Exactly. And I think that's the thing that like I wish more people like because I get DMs as well. And people ask me, you know, like, how do you grow on, you know, Twitter or whatever? How do you get a base? And I always say, like, you first have to first enjoy what you're like putting out your content that you put out. You should at least enjoy it um, and then uh, go with like be natural with it. it shouldn't be forced. It shouldn't be something that you're trying to create out of thin, like you're not trying to be fake. Um, do stuff that you enjoy and people will naturally gravitate um, to that. And I think. Uh, one thing that people are uncomfortable with is disagreeing. And I think it's okay. We can disagree um, as long as you have a stance behind it that you can support. And I have a stance behind it that I can support. We can disagree. Like you can see it like, okay, the game went this way. I can say the game went that way. If our reasonings, that's fine. I think that's the part that people have trouble with is like disagreeing, being able to disagree. And it's okay. Like it's fine. It's basketball. It's not, it, when we disagree, we don't have to then move to personal attacks, which I see a lot on the timeline. It's very weird. Two people will be talking about basketball, and all of a sudden it becomes personal. Like, no, this is basketball. It's supposed to be fun. And I think we lose that sometimes. It's supposed to be enjoyable. That's the whole point of this. Um, this is all supposed to be an enjoyable thing. So I think that's that's important. I think you're right. We both go into it with our own kind of views, and that's the whole point of this. We all have our own relationship with the game. However, we got to it. Um, and we're passionate about it. And I think that shows, um, and all the people on NBA Twitter mostly are, have a passion towards it in some way, no matter how they got there. And I think that's something to remember, but yeah, I agree with that. And no matter what you say, someone's going to disagree, you know, like, like when you and I do our postseason podcast where we do, you know, player rankings and things along those lines, like, you know, you and I are going to put a great deal of thought into it and we're going to come up with lists that we believe in. And mm-hmm. no matter what, someone's going to think it's insane. Like, I'm not going to put Giannis number one, even if he drops 47 points tonight and, and wins the game. I'm not going to put him number one because I just don't think he's the best basketball player in the world. Um, that doesn't mean I disrespect him. I think he's in the top tier of stars. I've been incredibly impressed by what he's done in this playoff run. Like, I think he's put a discernible gap between him and someone like James Harden, which is was something that was more of a debate last year, you know. Uh, I, I, but when I, when, when that comes out, there will be, there will likely be somebody in our mention saying mean stuff. You know, that's just the, the natural progression of things. And it's unfortunate because it would be ridiculous if all of us just carried the same opinion on this kind of stuff. You know, like the, the, the group that I always have run-ins with is Golden State Warriors Twitter. They are awful to me, like awful, awful, awful to me. And it's hilarious because I'm, I think Steph is one of the 10 best players ever. I think he has been no lower than the third best player in the league for the last seven years. Um, I'll probably rank him second or third this year, despite missing the playoffs. And in general, I think he's one of my favorite players. I love his leadership style. I love Clay Thompson. I value what Draymond Green does. I, I, I'm a Tucson local, so Steve Kerr is one of my favorites. Like I am a Warriors fan in a lot of ways. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're awful, awful, awful to me because I don't put Steph above LeBron. And it's just, it's just such a ridiculous uh, uh, like phenomenon on, on basketball Twitter. Yeah, for sure. I'm blocked by like half of Clippers Twitter for some reason. I a lot of Celtics fans as well. It's fine that I've never interacted with, and that's just how it goes. And that's that's okay. But um, yeah, I've, I've tried to limit the amount of like quote tweet dunks. Like when I first started, I used to do that a lot, and now I try to at least limit that a little bit to try to not um try to get on people that way. But yeah, that's just how it goes. That's how Twitter is. Um, and that, that's just how we we conversate now, I guess. 
Yeah, I, I I have been trying hard to cut back on that too, and then I and then I tweeted that thing the other day about Urkel, and I was like, afterwards, I was like, why do I even do this anymore? Like, come on, Jason, grow up. You turned thirty this year. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, that's all we got, I think, for today. Unless you have anything that you want to add. Alrighty, oh, no, thank you. Right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening with us. I'm going to uh, release the uh, podcast version here shortly. Um, that episode 65 that was missing, I tracked it down. You have to search for it individually for whatever reason. But uh, if you just search State of the Lakers episode 65, it'll pop up. Um, we will be back either uh, tomorrow morning or or Thursday morning, depending. Probably Thursday is my guess. Um, but, uh, thank you guys as usual for your support. Raj, I hope you have a good day and I will see you in a couple days. Thanks everyone. Appreciate it.